In this episode, I'm thrilled to have with me Sam Tate. Sam is one of the top anti-corruption lawyers literally across the globe. He's worked on monitorships, he's worked on investigations, he advises governments, and he is one of the true fonts of knowledge in anti-corruption. He's from London, uh, so he specializes in the uh, UK Bribery Act, but also other international anti-corruption laws. He's here today to talk about the new Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill in the UK Parliament and how this will create a failure-to-prevent cause of action around fraud and fraud prevention. It's something that every corporate compliance officer needs to be aware of going forward. It's a great interview. I know you'll enjoy Sam Tate. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and you are in for a treat today, mainly because I'm in for a treat today. Uh, Finally have Sam Tate on the podcast. Sam, I can't thank you enough, but welcome to the podcast. Well, Tom, thank you very much. It's a a real pleasure to be here with you, and and I've been looking forward to, to being here equally as much as you've been looking forward to having me. Well, Sam, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background and your current role? Well, I think perhaps what's slightly unusual about my background is I spent five years in-house as a subject matter expert in anti-corruption at an oil and gas super major, and then spent a number of years on US-UK monitorships of uh, banks, so HSBC and Credit Agricole. And that means I kind of straddle the corporate and regulated sectors, which is a little unusual. I I also lead now the, the white collar crime practice at the international law firm RPC, where I work out of the London office. So Sam, today our topic is starting with the economic crime and corporate transparency bill that has been proposed. Talk about what is in it and perhaps more importantly, what it might mean for corporations, compliance professionals, and a wide variety of others going forward. So could we maybe start with what do you see that this bill is trying to accomplish? Well, it's, it's a great question, Tom, because it's trying to accomplish quite a lot with one bill. So it's some 350 paragraphs long, and, and you and your listeners uh, will be pleased I'm not going to run through them all. Uh, but it does a few really important things. And the first thing uh, is that it's likely to establish a new failure to prevent offence for fraud. And if that happens, it will be the biggest change in financial crime in the UK for at least a decade. So it's that kind of significant. What else does it do? Well, it adds a number of powers to regulators and prosecutors, and it aims to increase corporate transparency, including in relation to to LLP. So there's a lot packed into this bill. Why now? Why this government? And what do you see as potential either shortcomings, failings, or other reasons to create this bill at this point in time? Well, because it does different things, there are, there are kind of different there are different reasons for different sections, Tom. But I'll, I'll kind of take you through them at a, a high level. But in, in relation to the failure to the to prevent offence, it's really about the government's focus on fraud. So fraud has been a growing issue in the UK. It's our most prevalent offence. There are more fraud offences than any other types of offending in the UK. And it's got a lot of attention in the media and in the government. So so that's why there's a focus on on fraud. 
As to other sections, well, there's been a lot of criticism of, of uh, Companies House and other registers for not providing accurate data and not checking it. And there have been other points made by prosecutors about limitations on their powers, which has made it harder for them to investigate wrongdoing. So it has a lot of different sections. That the reasons for those kind of vary quite a lot. Why now? Well, we're out from COVID, Tom, and that means the government can do things. So it has a bit more legislative time in order to progress areas like this, and that's perhaps why it's pushed so many things into one bill. Let me step back and ask you something that American listeners may not understand. When legislation is proposed, at least as I understand it in the United Kingdom, it's called a bill. If it becomes law, the name is changed to law. And if that's right, can you explain the legislative process for the American audience? Yeah, of course. So legislation can, can start off in many different ways. So it might be proposed by an MP or brought forward by the government. You then have a bill which passes through a number of stages in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Depending on the House of Lords is the amending chamber. That's a, a bit like your Senate, I understand. And um, so the the process there is one with lots of detail. They can pass it back to our House of Commons and eventually it's it's enacted. And so it becomes an act and that means it has royal assent. So it's signed off by the by the Queen, by the way, or King now. Not something, by the way, that they've ever refused or not, not in the last 300 years. Many years ago, I was a legislative assistant and was involved in writing legislation. So I under, have some understanding of that process. Would that process be done by assistance to MPs, by other sections of the government, uh, perhaps prosecutors, or others concerned with transparency or opaqueness in company house? How does a bill actually get created? Well, you know, it's quite an iterative uh, process, but you have parliamentary draftsmen. So for the most part, it will be drafted by under the under government ministers with the assistance of parliamentary draftsmen. So what are some of the economic crimes that are likely to be covered by this bill? Another great question, Tom. Um, the, I think I might here just expand a bit on the failure to prevent fraud offence. And if you don't mind, I just need to explain why our law isn't as good as yours. So it'll give you a bit of background. But Absolutely. It, for, the, for the most part, cr- corporates are only, crim- only criminal li- liable in England where the directors and officers knew of or approved the wrongdoing. It's something we call the guiding mind test. So they are the brains of the company and they've got to be involved for the corporates to be criminally liable. There's no kind of vicarious liability. There are a couple of exceptions, though. One in the Bribery Act and another relating to tax evasion. And that those introduce criminal corporate liability for failing to prevent something. A corporate fails to prevent bribery and it doesn't have in place adequate procedures. That's the defence to stop to stop the uh, the offending that needs to be there it's the only defense that there is um so if you had a fraud offense of the one that they are suggesting then a corporate uh, doing probably doing any business in the uk or having a parliament in the, in the business in the uk so it could be one in the us it could be one anywhere in the world anywhere in the world with parliament's business in the uk would be corporately criminally liable if it failed to prevent fraud unless it had a series of adequate procedures in place to prevent, to prevent that. Uh, and I think that that will be, if it passes, of significant interest to tech companies in the US, telecoms companies who might be alleged to have facilitated fraud by not preventing messages to vulnerable people through their systems, to any corporate which is found to have 
missold, um, so to perhaps have told lies about products. Here I'm thinking about Dieselgate, for instance. And of course, the payment processes, which are which are moving money around and therefore enabling fraud. And finally, to to law firms, accountancies, and others, uh, which do seem to be a focus of this act. So depending on how it progresses, it could be a really significant change across a lot of key sectors and affect a lot of companies which are not based in the UK. I think we both have some experience in the energy industry, and particularly for producing companies, a key issue is always reserves. Uh, in At least in Texas, we say reserves are your hope of what is in the ground, but you have to put an estimate on it because it's something that is deemed a material piece of information for investors. And uh, could, we have had cases in the United States of accounting fraud around that. Could this bill reach to something like that issue for producing energy companies in the United Kingdom as well? Yes, I think I think it could. So the way, it depends how they structure the offence, Tom. Bribery is defined in the, in our legislation as offering something with the intention of causing another person to improperly perform their duties. Fraud takes a few for, a few forms, but essentially is deceit of one kind or another, sometimes with the abuse of a trust thrown in, a, a, position, a position of trust. So what you've got obligations like a company would have to its shareholders there uh, around reserves, and they have told mistruths. And here I think back to Shell, which was caught up in a scandal with that many, many years ago, as you as you will know, Tom. Then that could constitute a fraud offence. It would be a lot easier to prosecute now than it would have been back in the day under this legislation. And it should worry companies because the there is a prosecutor in the UK, the Serious Fraud Office, uh, which takes on these cases and our fines or DPA settlements in the last seven years have exceeded one and a half billion dollars. So, you know, these are not kind of trivial sums, but also, and you, you'll know all this stuff from your your podcast, Tom, the importance of having a clean sheet when it comes to government procurement contracts, recruiting, share prices, and a million other things. You just don't want to have a, a corporate criminal liability if you're a, a large international company. What do you see in terms of extraterritorial effect? Well, if it's, again, you know, I have to look at the current legislation, and I did co-write a book on it with Christopher Salon, Casey, as he now is. So if you look at the, if you look at the current um, legislation, then our laws, corporate laws, are said to apply to a company with any, any part of its business in the UK. It's not entirely clear what that is because we haven't had a ton of cases, but it's a registered office, a large part of your business, or even a small part of your business, a trading arm, perhaps doing your accounts here, probably something a little bit more than trading on the UK Stock Exchange, but not much more, is enough to have a part of your business in the UK. And so if, it, if, it, if it's the same as the UK Bribery Act, and I would imagine it would be, then it would cover a, a company established in the Philippines, which had some part of its business in the UK where the fraud was committed in Australia because that, that would also follow the UK bribery act. In other words, very broad extraterritoriality, but not quite as much as the DOJ would have for the FCPA. So it's not just based on having transactions in pounds or, or you know, the odd email going through London. Something a bit more than that, but not. But, but not uh, you don't need to be mainly in the UK. I think there's been a fair amount of folks looking at issues around company house, companies' house, the same in the United States, where they're trying to put a corporate register together. How do you see these reforms as it relates to Companies House? 
Well, the, the long-standing problem with Companies House has been that the information it holds is not reliable because it's not policed. So Companies House at the moment should really be seen as a library where the librarian hasn't read any of the books. And it's the moves that we see afoot in the Act are really about verification and funding and resourcing that. And you can call it verification or investigation or whatever, but it amounts to checking the data that's available. And so they would remove records rates, dissolve companies. They would, um, there's a verification process. So the bill would introduce verification for all new and existing registered companies, directors, uh, for persons and for persons with significant control over the, the companies and those delivering documents to companies' house. The, these greater investigation and actually greater enforcement powers kind of come at a price, and it's likely that the cost of registering a company in the UK will increase. But the task before Companies House is huge. So there is a lot of work to do in order to change this from a library to kind of a more like a curated shop of things that you might be interested in buying. And it, it remains to be seen if they it remains to be seen how they will staff and fund that and how quickly it will be achieved. Sam, so how do you see this new bill uh, of impacting limited partnerships, or perhaps I may even ask you to take a step back and ask what is the issue or abuse with limited partnerships and how does this bill try to address those questions? So, as you know, as you know, Tom, limited liability partnerships have been a conduit for money laundering and scams in, in England and in Scotland. And that's been a persistent problem essentially because of the ease of selling them up and the lack of transparency. So it should, of course, be the case of it that um, our corporate entities are difficult to corrupt to one or other nefarious ends. But it hasn't been. And um, this has been raised again and again by uh, NGOs, non-governmental organisations, and by the press. So under the bill, there's requirement to hold a registered office in part of the UK for an LLP. There are also requirements around providing data around the, the person who creates the, 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 the LLP so they can be get hold, got hold of, including an email address. So the idea is that you'll have no more LLPs set up that you can't reach, that nobody understands and you can't get documents for. And that extends to HMRC, which is our, our kind of tax department in, in the government, and it being able to get hold of accounts and records. So they're going for a kind of more supervised approach with a lot more detail. Again, I think the problem is, how would this be policed? And there's a six-month transitional period, but what happens at the end of it? You know, will we be in much the same world? What you often see happen, uh, Tom, is that a new set of requirements will come in and all of the, if I can call them good companies, will comply, which are not the ones that you're worried about. And uh, the question is, how do you then follow up on the on the companies that aren't compliant and are refusing to comply. And, you know, that is about resourcing. So whenever you see these changes in the UK, you just have to ask, how has it been policed and how has it been resourced? I'm sure it's the same in the US. One of the things that has, I'm not sure, changed after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but it's certainly become more prominent, is the US, obviously there have been a series of sanctions levied, economic sanctions and controls, but the US government has made clear they view businesses as a partnership with the government to try to stop money laundering, 
other economic crimes and sanctions violations. And I was wondering if this legislation might facilitate that type of dialogue in the United Kingdom as well, where companies will come forward to regulators if they find something even internally and and self-disclose, or is that really not a part of this legislation? It is a part of the legislation uh, as it relates to regulated entities. Certainly, by the way, I I agree with that approach. Uh, My experience of companies is they mostly want to do the right thing and they want to engage with prosecutors and uh, regulators. In relation to those regulated firms, there are provisions for the sharing of information between them. So one of the problems that banks have had is that they have identified financial crime within their clients, their customers, and they haven't been able to share them with other banks with whom they know that customer is engaged. Well, this will stop that problem. Um, So a bank will be able to transfer information that's been asked for where that information that the, the first bank has decided to take safeguarding action as a result of economic crime concerns. So basically, it will allow information to be shared much, much more freely between regulated entities. There are also some provisions to make it easier for the National Crime Agency. That's what they like to call themselves, the equivalent of the FBI. So the, that's, uh, that's uh, for them to obtain information without the filing of a suspicious activity report. So those are notifications that have to be made by regulated entities to the government and can be made actually on a voluntary basis by non-regulated entities. But it, it allows the NCA to seek information at an earlier stage. Uh, I'd like to turn now to the Serious Fraud Office and its relationship with the Department of Justice and some other issues currently in front of the SFO. Um, Last month, uh, one of the Hassani brothers was sentenced to one year in jail here in the United States, and that he was one of the two from Unioil, and I think there were some pretty hard feelings between the DOJ and SFO around the extradition to the United States, cooperation with the United States, and now this one-year jail term, but I wondered if you might assess the relationship after that and is is it going to go back to what I perceived it was, perhaps before that case? Well, I mean, I can I suppose I can give you my perceptions, and, and my perception is that there was a real problem in the relationship between the Department of Justice and the series of fraud and the serious fraud office at the end of the tenure of the previous director, and that was essentially around turf and who got what, and. I think I understand those discussions were fairly frank. I think what, what changed with Lisa Osofsky coming in as a director in 2018 was a real willingness to collaborate. And I think I know that it helped that um, Lisa was a dual citizen and had worked at the FBI within an ethics position before, but there was a, certainly a warming of those relationships is my understanding. And actually, I think probably one of the lasting legacies um, of her time as director uh, is is the improvements in the relationships with the US. In fact, I think she's been out there quite recently. But you see that play out. I will come back to the Zani case, but you see that play out in so many areas. For instance, in compliance, there's a kind of aligning of UK and US standards and actually just considering compliance and crime prevention to be important. I think the current director has really led on that, not been given enough credit for it. And so there's, it's more of a discussion around like minds now. 
I think, and information sharing is done on a daily basis. I know that um, from my from my matters with the with the SFA. So, so I, yes, I mean maybe the Asani case was a bump along the road, but the the general trajectory over the last four and a half years has been positive. Well, that really led me to my next question, and perhaps I got some insight into the answer, which is where does the SFO go after? Lisa Osofsky, and uh, perhaps with with your thoughts or comments, rather, it might be that the next director might be evolutionary, but certainly not revolutionary, and that the continuation of this collaboration could could and should continue going forward. I think whatever happens, it's in everybody's interest to collaborate with the U.S. authorities, but because you know you're the huge gorilla, <laughs> and just makes no sense at all not not to work together where we possibly can. So I think that will continue, whoever comes in. It's difficult to know. Every director does this job differently. I think there's likely to be more of a focus on prosecutions, perhaps, than DPAs. I think we would like to see that. That was um, something we saw under David Green. I uh, The new director, whoever it is, and of course there may be an extension of Felicia Osofsky's term that was with David Green for a couple of years, but any new director will have quite a lot of capacity, I think, to bring in new cases. And that's because a number of cases have come to an end, so which you'll, which you'll have read about, of course. But Rolls-Royce, GSK, and others came to an end during Lisa Ososki's time as director. So there should be some space for that new person to, to dictate what the SFA should be doing. And that could be about sectors. It could be about bits of the world that they're more interested in it could be about fraud because of course there's been a lot of press around fraud associated with covid and the buying of uh, substandard equipment and and so on and so that that could be the focus of a new director otherwise i'm afraid tom your guess is as good as mine (laughs) and one last question along these lines do you see any hope that the enrc sfo matter can be resolved or does it look like it will go to trial well, a very, very long time ago, I was a commercial litigator. And so I suppose what I can say is that nearly everything settles. So this probably will. Certainly over 80% of cases settle. So that they, the good money must be on a settlement at some point. The difficulty is the claims are of very high value. So you're looking at claims in the tens of millions. And that's a very significant sum as against the SFO budget. On the other hand, the activity, as I understand it, and I'm not an expert on the ENRC case, proceed before the time of the current director. I would have thought that would make it slightly easier to settle. I would hope that it settles before a new director takes over. I I think that it might otherwise be a distraction. It really is in nobody's interest in the UK uh, that a lot of time is spent on one matter when there is so much activity that the serious fraud office could otherwise be engaged with. Sam, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, on the firm, or really any of the topics we touched on in this podcast, what would be the best place or places for them to go? Well, Tom, your listeners are very welcome to get in touch. I'm contactable through LinkedIn. You can find me at Sam Tate on on LinkedIn or or just email me, uh, sam.tate, that's T-A-T-E, at rpc.co.uk. And either I or one of my team will be happy to explain this bit of legislation or any other area in more detail. 
Sam, I really wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. I hope that perhaps if this legislation becomes law, we could visit again on the final act or bill, or excuse me, law that may come out of it. And I look forward to continuing this conversation. Me too, Tom. That's very generous of you. I've really enjoyed it, genuinely enjoyed the time spent with you, and I'd be delighted to come back another time. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you will join me for our next episode where we take up another deep dive into compliance. The award-winning FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please uh, send me an email or give me a shout out. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.